Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host and an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. My guest today is Felicia Njeja Viator. Dr. Viator is an assistant professor of history at San Francisco State University and is the author of To Live and Defy in L.A., How Gangsta Rap Changed America, which came out just earlier this year in 2020 with Harvard University Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Felicia. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I have to say on behalf of all of us releasing books in 2020, uh, we appreciate the support. So I'm glad to be here. (laughs) Yeah, we're, we're, we're always happy to have authors like yourself on, of course. Um, why don't we begin, like we always do on this show, by just hearing a little bit about you and your biography. Tell us about your background and what got you interested in history. Um, good question. Uh, I actually had very little interest in history, honestly, until I got to college. Um, in high school, I was sort of a math nerd. I loved calculus, mostly. Uh, I, I think the logic and simplicity of getting to an undisputed answer, I liked that a lot. So I was, I was really into math. <laughs> um, but my interests changed quite a bit in college. I went to UC Berkeley, and when I was there, the historian Leon Litwack was teaching his massive Intro to American History course. Um, this was 700 students in one huge auditorium, and it was just mesmerizing. Litwax, um, his, his intro to history was kind of a rite of passage for many of us who came through Berkeley. Um, some, some people listening to the podcast may have, may, you know, have, have become historians because they went to Berkeley and they, they were in Litwax, uh, History 7B, so I know I'm not the only one. Uh, he told these stories about the American past with these fascinating figures that I had never heard of, especially for somebody who wasn't interested in history prior to college, who hadn't read history, um, sometimes fell asleep in history class. Uh, you know, he told stories about people like Amy Semple McPherson and um, Ida B. Wells and Victoria Woodhull. Uh, and then he also framed our understanding of people who, who we thought we knew, people like um, Walt Disney and Ronald Reagan, for instance. Um, and of course, this is the 90s. So, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan is the, the president of my childhood. And so to hear uh, a historian talking about such contemporary history was also really fascinating. And I just went away from that course, um, not with the best grade in the world, but with these real revelations about the tensions and also the possibilities of these these different moments in time. So it just, um, it gave me a fresh way to look at the world around me. And I was just sold on history as a field after that class. So I ended up majoring in history. Um, I did my undergrad thesis with Litwack, actually. I, I ended up working with him um, uh, toward the end of my undergraduate career. And I even stayed an extra year at Berkeley to work on a second thesis. Um, with him and with another historian, brilliant historian who was at Berkeley, 
who's still at Berkeley, uh, Waldo Martin. So, um, and at that time, I was researching local Bay Area history, so not yet LA and not the 80s. I was focused on the 60s, actually. I was researching the Black Panthers, which was, um, as you can imagine, really exciting work to do in the Bay at that time, in the 90s, um, just you know, a couple decades out from when the Panthers were, were active. So I got to interview former Panthers. I interviewed, I had a phone conversation, a long, fascinating phone conversation with uh, Elaine Brown, I was able to talk to David Hilliard. I sat down with um, the Oakland police chief at the time, Charles Plummer, along with some former cops who were on the force in the 60s and 70s. My dad um, is a former Oakland cop, so uh, which is sort of a maybe um, unexpected piece of my background considering what I write about. Um, but it, you know, in terms of that research, it was helpful to have somebody who um, had those connections and, and, and you know, that, that perspective growing up in East Oakland and um, having, having uh, been on the force uh, in the 70s. So, yeah, exciting opportunities for a college senior, for sure, you know, still dipping my toes in, in, in serious historical research. Um, it, was, it, was a, it was an exciting time. Um, I, but I didn't go straight into a PhD program, as a lot of people do now, um, as a lot of my own students do. Um, I honestly, at the time, didn't think that I was smart enough for grad school. Uh, I, I did very poorly on the GRE, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, in the verbal section. I did actually really fantastically in the math section, <laughs> um, but did really poorly, uh, especially for somebody aspiring to go to um, a PhD program at a place like Berkeley or a place like NYU or Columbia. I just, uh, I just didn't do very well, and I had one professor, not Leon or Waldo, but another professor who I had asked for a letter of recommendation and um, refused to write one because he just didn't think that grad school was the right path for me. Um, and I did apply to grad school a little defiantly um, and was rejected everywhere, so initially. So I, um, you know, I figured that that professor was right and I, and I took five years off. I mean, I didn't know it was only going to be five years, but I just, you know, I decided that I would um, get an office job. I did some substitute teaching in um, San Lorenzo and San Leandro uh, middle schools. Uh, that's sort of in the Bay Area and uh, near Oakland. And um, I also had the opportunity to pursue a DJ career. I was a DJ um, from, from early on, about from about 19 years old, and so, um, after college, with that time off, I, you know, I had I had the time to focus on that. Um, so I worked during the days, and then I DJed at night, and it was fun. It was rudderless. It was <laughs> sleepless, uh, but you know, it was it was a, a good a good way to transition. And then um, around 2004, or so you know, about five years after I graduated from Berkeley, um, Waldo and Leon reached out. They actually encouraged me to apply to Berkeley to come study with them. So I, I applied again to grad school and um, did end up getting into Berkeley um, and started in the history program. So, you know, it's a roundabout way of becoming a trained historian, not the most um, straightforward path. 
<laughs> and it's it's funny to go from, as you said, kind of at the outset, to go from math, which, as as you, you you put it, has very defined, very specific, concrete answers much of the time, to something like history, which often shuns those kind of very specific, concrete answers, is, is sort of a funny turnaround. Yeah, and, and part of the reason why I think I didn't do very well in my history course, as much as I loved them, um, I struggled with that. You know, I, I struggled with that kind of analytical thinking. Um, I, I needed to find the answer, and sometimes you know that, that you can be very closed off to seeing things from different perspectives when you when you're you know thinking um, so logically that way. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it, it was very much a switch for me um, in my thinking. And if you don't mind my asking, do you still DJ at all? I you know no. I the last time I DJed was in 2010. I I sort of quote-unquote, retired from DJing in 2008 when I um, got pregnant with my, my daughter. So, um, you know, it just, it, it, I had been DJing for a long time up to that point, from 97 um, through to 2008, so over a decade. And, it, you know, it, it, it wore on me, and I didn't see it as a, um, as a career path. So, you know, I just had had enough sleepless nights and this is before mp3s and before all the technology hmm. that allows djs not to have to carry crates and crates and crates of records into the into the club so um you know my body had taken <laughs> taken a hit over the years um and you know it was just time to move on i it, i i felt like i had kind of laid the groundwork for other women when i started there weren't very many women DJ, there were like two or three of us so um I had something to prove, and then by, by 2008, 2009, there were a lot of women DJing in the Bay, so it was like time to pass the torch. So, yeah. <laughs> and what brought you to uh, this book in particular? What made you want to write a book about the history of gangster rap and uh, Los Angeles in particular, being such a, such a person of the Bay Area in the 1980s? Yeah, it's, I've been asked this a few times, and um, it is a deceptively complicated question. Hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, how does a trained historian, a traditionally trained historian, end up writing a book about rap music, um, which now I think is a little more, would be a little more acceptable. I have a lot of students interested in writing about rap, but at the time that I was considering this, it was just sort of not something you did, at least not in sort of traditional um, uh, history doctoral programs. You didn't write about pop music. You didn't write about rap. You didn't write about the 80s. Um, and... So, and, and also, you know, how does somebody like me, who was born and raised in the Bay, as you mentioned, never left the Bay. I grew up, you know, I grew up in the Bay. I went to Berkeley, went to grad, you know, as an undergrad, then went to grad school in Berkeley, and now I have a job at San Francisco State, never left the Bay. Um, I'm also second generation Portuguese, a Portuguese kid descended from um, Central Valley farmers, child of an Oaken cop. So, you know, how does somebody like that end up spending so many years examining black LA? examining hip-hop history specifically. So, I mean, part of it is the music, right? So I, um, I'm, I had, music was such an integral part of my life from the start. Uh, my parents had this really eclectic record collection. They played music all day long, everything from like Otis Redding to, to Prince to Kate Bush to Cat Stevens you know, and everything in between. My dad came out of the East Oakland lowrider tradition, so he played a lot of like doo-wop and old soul every time he drive me around in his old Chevy. Um, we had musicians in the family, so backyard barbecues. 
you know, featured amps and speakers and guitars and mics. So I was exposed to a lot of that kind of equipment, which is, I think, probably in part connect connected to why I ended up um, being interested in DJ technology. But I was also like classically trained in piano from very little. I, you know, had a my first job was in a music store in college. I volunteered at CalX. I did street promotions for an indie label um, in Oakland. And then, of course, I worked as a DJ. So, like, I was exposed to all sorts of music, and my life was so wrapped up in the experiences of music um, that when I had my first experiences of history as a field, the things that excited me the most about these stories of the past were naturally the way that music factored in. And I'll give you one example. I took a course with a professor named Kerwin Klein at, at Berkeley when I was an undergrad. And, you know, the most memorable thing to me was the fact that he, in teaching about the LA riots, so this is like 90, um, 98 when I took the course, and he was teaching about the LA riots that happened in 92, and he, um, he, gave us an article about Ice Cube. And I was just like so drawn to that, so mesmerized by the fact that this, this historian at Berkeley was not only teaching us really, really contemporary history that we had all experienced, but then also was, was working into the discussion, uh, you know, thinking, thinking historically about a rapper that I loved and an album, The Predator, that I loved. So it just, it kind of clicked for me that I thought, you know, maybe this is legitimate history. Maybe this is something that, um, that I can write about. Um, but then when I was in grad school, you know, I thought about writing about music. But again, as I mentioned at the time, like hip hop was not a traditional historical topic. It, it didn't seem to me that it would be okay for a dissertation. And I, and I struggled with that. Um, I think my advisors, Waldo and Leon, always suspected that I'd write about rap, even when I didn't. Um, but you know, again, there's sort of a roundabout way that I came to it. Like I mentioned, my first research projects were focused on the Black Panthers. And um, it, the, it wasn't something that I planned to pursue in grad school. But one thing that really resonated for me about that research on the Panthers was how complicated and kind of symbiotic the relationship between those black radicals and the mainstream press had been. So there was a way um, that I found that the Panthers, especially Huey Newton and Bobby Seale specifically, that they had this sort of sophisticated plan for utilizing media attention to draw people to their programs and to their platform. And it seemed to me when I was doing that research that they kind of understood that growing their ranks depended on the media as much as it depended on their messages of revolution. So that thing stayed with me. This idea of like, you know, um, black protest, black, black radicalism, and its relationship to the media. So there was kind of a seed there. And then the other thing that I was struck with when I was working on that project that was focused on the '60s was how confused the nation seemed to be by the 1965 Watts riots. Um, so I, in, in my undergraduate studies, I read um, the historian Gerald Horn. I read his book, The Fire Next Time, which um, historians of the, of the West are probably really familiar with. And I, in reading his book, I was just struck by how clear it was that LA had been kind of this tinderbox for racial violence and for black rebellion and how 
blind the nation had been to black grievances in the West and this growing crisis in LA that ultimately culminates with, with the, the, the uprising in 1965. So in grad school, this is the context in which I started thinking about gangster rap um, and, and why it emerges in the late, late 1980s and, and, um, and thinking about why the nation responded to the music the way that it did, why you know, people were so um, shocked and appalled and, um, and why it seemed to not fit into the context of uh, pop music at the time. And so, I mean, there was, this, there was the idea there, but it took me years to commit to the topic. I, I ended up spending uh, you know, more years in grad school than, than I should have, in, in part because it really was tough for me to commit to what I knew I wanted to write about. Um, I had one grad professor who, who I admired very, very, very much, who encouraged me um, throughout the process, who really wanted me to write about immigrants in the Central Valley which was a topic that I had researched and a topic that I was um, personally connected to, as I mentioned. I had my grandmother's journals, I had collected oral histories, and um, so there was a point at which I thought that that was the direction I'd go. And um, you know, still doing California history, um, but, but looking instead at the Central Valley and about um, society and culture in those immigrant communities. And this professor, she just encouraged me to find um, something that would be quote unquote more legitimate than writing about rap music. I mean, she she genuinely wanted to help me get a book contract. She wanted me to get a job, and she um, just she and she was not unique in this way. I had a lot of people, including some of my um, grad school colleagues, who just thought a dissertation about LA rap was just a, a career killer. Um, that it, it would just I wouldn't be taken seriously. So. Um, I'm lucky that Leon and Waldo, and also Kerwin Klein, who I mentioned, um, they all just kind of told me to ignore those pressures and pursue this topic. And um, they just saw what I saw, which was that this was a meaningful historical topic that could reveal a lot uh, about, especially this this post civil rights, post civil rights, post Black Power era, and um, and about the Reagan era. So. I was lucky to have that support um, because it just, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't the thing to do <laughs> um, just 10 years ago. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't sort of seen as like something that, that would, um, would help you succeed in history. Well, let's talk about what, uh, what, what, what this history reveals yeah. then. And why don't we begin just with, with a bit of the context. Tell us about Los Angeles and Southern California at the end of the 1970s and at the very beginning of the Reagan era. And why don't we begin by just you telling us the, the significance, both culturally and politically, of, of what, what you describe in the book as the batter ram. What is that? Okay. Um, yeah, I start... The book, chapter one is called The Batteram, um, which is both a reference to a song by uh, a Compton rapper named Toddy T um, and a reference to uh, an LAPD tank-like vehicle. Um, so I'll back up for a second. So the by the late 1970s, um, as you were asking, LA County is on the precipice of what is essentially a multi-pronged crisis. So there's, there's economic decline after years of 
deindustrialization and rising unemployment, depleted city budgets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is all hitting black communities disproportionately and black youth in particular. So that's one part of the crisis. And then at the same time, um, there's this, this introduction of rock cocaine, of sort of colloquially, we now think of it as crack. Uh, that is 18, 18, excuse me, 1983, when, when rock cocaine is introduced into L.A., and that devastates communities that are already struggling against um, you know, these, the, the economic crisis and crime and problems of addiction. Um, and the drug and drug trafficking fuels gang turf wars, and it fuels these really severe forms of gun violence. Um, and just to give you a taste for how severe a crisis this was for city leaders, I mentioned this in the book, but by 1984, Mayor Tom Bradley, the mayor of L.A., is, is referring to gangs and drug traffickers as urban terrorists. And this is coming right off, um, you know, right off the heels of the, the, um, the, the Olympics being held in L.A. and real concerns about terrorism within Los Angeles. So you know, at the same time, Bradley is referring to uh, you know, to what are, you know, predominantly young people in L.A. County um, who are part of these gang turf wars, who are, who are both, um, uh, you know, committing gun violence and victim of, victims of gun violence. He's referring to, like, this whole landscape um, of, of crime as, you know, urban terrorism. So that's two, right? That's, that's the, the second part of the crisis. And then um, what is often lost in discussions of this period and the sort of the crack crisis in LA is there's this other part of the crisis that is related to policing. Um, because in 1978, Daryl Gates becomes chief of police in LA and he immediately ramps up the department's move toward more militarized policing methods. So um, if you're familiar with SWAT, so special weapons and tactics, that the idea of SWAT, like our shorthand term that we use when we refer to SWAT teams, um, Daryl Gates makes, I mean, he basically introduces SWAT uh, and makes it a fixture of LA policing in black residential communities. And then in response to the problem of cracking gangs, this sort of quote unquote urban terrorism, he's able to earn popular support and of course support from the mayor for increasingly extreme forms of policing, including things like gang sweeps, which are basically racially profiled mass arrests. And then he's also able to introduce the battering ram, these, these, these tanks that um, are used for drug busts on the streets of LA and residential communities in LA, largely in, in um, black communities in South LA. So by 1985, um, within just a couple of years of all of these things kind of coming to a head, LA is the epicenter for crack trade, it's the epicenter for gang violence, and it's the epicenter for militarized policing. Um, and 85 is also the year when Toddy T, this black teen from Compton, makes a home recording. He makes this street tape uh, with a set of rap songs that are addressing all of these different things, including the battering ram, um, in a song that he calls the battering ram, which, which tells in kind of explicit, terrible detail, the horror of this tank painted LAPD blue, you know, slapped with a sticker that says rescue vehicle on the side, that this tank is like rolling through neighborhood streets. And, you know, and, and the song is also reflective of the fear that comes from not knowing where, the, where this tank will strike next. 
and that track becomes a local anthem and really um, the first LA rap hit. Um, it's a local rap hit, uh, but in LA, um, it is an anthem and and arguably the first instance also in which you know a rap song um, it, it, in which we hear the phrase gangster rap. So you know he he actually uses that phrase in uh, in his in his rap tapes and um, so there's a, there's a way in which the battle ram itself is kind of the um, the the godfather <laughs> of gangster rap or Tony T is the godfather of gangster rap. So. We have this origin story that is really connected to that that multi-pronged crisis, the economic crisis and, and, and drug violence and militarized policing, and it's 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 so important um, to understand that backdrop when when you try to figure out you know why gangster rap emerges when it does. Um, so that's why I spent a lot of time, especially in that first chapter, laying that out. Yeah. And this book really does a phenomenal job of, of kind of threading music throughout the, the text. It seems like the kind of book that should come attached with its own Spotify playlist or something. I found myself turning to my phone to play the songs you were talking about repeatedly throughout the text. And, and by starting off with the bad ram, you really kind of set that tone. Thank you. I There is a Spotify playlist, actually. I, I Oh, is there? There <laughs> is. I specifically made one for... Um, the Los Angeles Review of Books interviewed me, and they, they requested one, so I made one for them, and it, so it's it's there. I should make it sort of more easy, easy to find on Spotify. Um, but yeah, if you if you search for the title of the book in Spotify, uh, you you can you'll come across that that playlist I made. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe after the interview, you can email that to me, and I'll sure. put it in the, the notes for the show on our New Books Network website. That, that'd be sure. great. Um. Well, let's talk about the history of, of rap as a, as a music scene a little bit. And you describe how rap began as sort of a localized scene in New York City at first. So then how did it take hold on the West Coast? And who are some of the people that can uh, claim responsibility for its leap across the continent? What artists are crucial to its growth on the West Coast? It, it's an important question. Uh, especially for me as a historian of the West. I had to ask myself when I was doing, when I was starting this project, you know, is this is this a westward cultural migration? You know, is this something like, you know, Larry May, the uh, film historian, talks about, you know, Hollywood is kind of this this New York import. You know, he, he makes that case. And so, I, you know, I tried to think, like, is this just a New York import? Um, or is this homegrown? Uh, is it sort of resistant to the New York influence? Or is it something else? You know, this, this is something I... I was crucial to my initial understanding of what's happening in LA. Um, and, and part of that was because I was really influenced by a lot of the literature about the history of hip hop. Um, I should say there was not a lot of literature about the history of hip hop when I started this project, but um, you know, hip hop scholarship was kind of just coming into itself, um, just maturing. And there were a couple of hip hop scholars uh, Jeff Chang, in particular, who um, did an excellent job of outlining the history of hip hop, but primarily through the lens of New York. I mean, the, you know, the the the, um, the the consensus story of the history of hip hop is that this is a Bronx-based phenomenon that then spreads out, spreads west. Um, you know, eventually takes hold in other regions after a couple of years of sort of coming, um, you know, sort of evolving within the context of the Northeast. So, you know, in the context of 
those stories that I had read and been so influenced by, L.A. rap appears just as this sort of offshoot, developing um, basically in the mold of New York rap. Uh, and Jeff Chang, to his credit, does identify L.A. rap as um, unique and kind of this renegade thing that happens. Um, so he, you know, he 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 does a nice job of outlining how L.A. rap is is distinct from the New York sound. But at the same time, there's still this argument that um, what happens in L.A. is is ultimately um, is ultimately influenced by New York, that New York kind of spreads west and that that L.A. adapts, that it sort of adopts what is happening in New York and then adapts. So, you know, the, the, the basic, the kind of original history of hip-hop that was told says that there are these four elements of, of hip-hop. There's emceeing, there's DJing, there's graffiti, and there's breakdancing. And this is a New York-based phenomenon and everything that we understand about all these other local hip hop um, uh, cultures needs to be understood understood through that framework. So, my research ultimately did not confirm that. Um, and instead, what what I found in LA were these two parallel but but really distinct things that were happening simultaneously in those early years, um, especially in sort of the the early to to mid 1980s, the thing, the, the the point at which you know Toddy T is making um, uh, the Bataram and and some of these early art, artists are, are just beginning to figure out you know how they're going to define themselves in art, as artists. So so these so the first thing I found in LA um, were these these kind of imported hip hop scenes, nightclubs mostly, sort of centered around nightclubs like the radio. Um, this downtown club that I talk about in the book, and then uh, other examples like Club Lingerie, which is in Hollywood, um, where you have you have literally New York transplants, people coming from New York who bring with them New York hip hop culture. So um, Alex Jordanoff is one example. So he he's actually French, but he comes to LA by way of New York with Manhattan connections. And he turns the radio, that club downtown in downtown LA, he turns the radio into what he sort of, he thought was like this little slice of the Bronx. So, you know, you have these big bubble letter graffiti murals inside the club. Um, there are B-boys that he invites to perform. There are rap showcases. Um, and then Club Lingerie has literally, you know, these these um, events called "quote unquote" Bronx sh Bronx showcases. So to give you a sense of like what the the reference is and what the you know the intention is, um, similar spirit. It is you know a, attracting, trying to attract a, a diverse group of um, audience members, but ultimately attracts mostly white patrons. Uh, in addition to um, local Latino and Asian and Pacific Islander kids, but very few black patrons, I should I should note. Um, artists in these clubs were, were often black, but mostly the events attracted white kids and white celebrities. So Madonna, for instance, was said to drop into the radio on occasion, right, to give you an example of, like, how popular these, these scenes were. Um, and a lot of white A&Rs who were coming to try to find talent. Um, which, which mirrors in many ways what's happening in New York at the same time. And so 
I had this aha moment when I, you know, dug into these clubs in particular where I was like, okay, this is what scholars are looking at. They're seeing, um, you know, in early LA rap, these echoes of New York hip hop because they're looking at these particular clubs and they're convinced that these clubs are representative of what LA youth at the time were doing. But, um, you know, something else is happening simultaneously. So the, the heart of my research is, is on what's happening separate from these, you know, quote unquote Bronx showcase clubs. LA at this same time had an extensive and thriving black mobile DJ culture. And, and mobile DJs are, you know, um, so if you think of like the Jamaican sound system or you think of um, even, you know, Cool Herc, who's sort of the, one of the first DJs in New York who like had these huge hulking speakers and turntables and a mixer and, you know, power amps and, you know, all of the technology that you'd need to like throw a big event um, without needing, uh, you know, a nightclub owner or a manager to book you. So, so these guys um, in LA and largely in places like South Central and Compton and Long Beach, you know, they're, they're, these, they're building these, these self-contained businesses, these mobile DJs, mobile DJ crews, and they're entertaining predominantly black crowds and big crowds. So, um, you know, the, you asked for example, so like Uncle Jam's Army was the, the you know, the, the top crew, and there, but there were so many others like Ultra Wave Productions, Knights of the Turntables, um, uh, Mix Masters, which was connected to um, Greg Mack from K-Day, the local, the local um, uh, hip hop station. So a lot of different mobile DJ crews who are operating separate from what's going on downtown and in Hollywood um, with completely different black crowds, completely different vibe, playing very, very different music, um, and, a, and a significant cultural force in Southern California and really in the West at that time, these guys were playing venues up and down the coast. So you have like Uncle Jam's Army playing Bill Graham Civic Center in San Francisco in 84 and 85. Um, and also, you know, playing to thousands of kids at huge venues like the LA Coliseum and the Palladium. So, I mean, these guys were no joke. They were they were doing um, they were doing big numbers. They were you know they were significant. But uh, and they would invite big artists. So by '84, uh, Uncle Jam's Army is inviting Run DMC to come perform uh, at their events. But they were inviting them to to be openers. So the DJs were the headliners, right? So this is not like we're trying to build an event around a New York rap crew who, by the way, had a huge single at that time. Instead, Run DMC is, is more likely to benefit from uh, you know, being, uh, being you know, for crowds being exposed to them on one of the Uncle Jam's Army events. So... Um, you know, DJs like Roger Clayton and Egyptian Lover um, and Arabian Prince, and eventually Dr. Dre, who also had a short career as a mobile DJ and, of course, was part of the world-class wrecking crew, um, you know, got his start as a DJ performing for crowds like these. 
Um, these are the, you know, these are the tastemakers. These are, these are the, the people who really mattered early on in the LA scene. And, and again, you know, this is happening parallel to what's, what's going on in these other clubs that are trying to replicate the New York scene. But in the mobile DJ culture in South LA, the music is, is different. It's faster paced. It's 808 heavy. It's, it's rap adjacent, but it's, you know, they're playing a lot of things like craft work and, um, you know, electro and freestyle and, and some funk, uh, right? So there's, there's hints at rap, and I think we, like, sort of retroactively see this as early L.A. rap, but a lot of it is, you know, could be defined at the time and was defined at the time more um, in terms of, you know, freestyle and electro, um, but that's the cultural and sonic foundation of what ultimately becomes gangster rap. And you can hear those influences even in NWA's first album, Straight Outta Compton. Um, you can also hear it in the early work of other LA artists like LA Dream Team and JJ Fad, by the way. You can definitely hear it in JJ Fad, a lot of fast pace, um, you know, 808 heavy sound that, that sounds a little bit like some of the stuff that Egyptian Lover was doing in the mid 80s. So, yeah, and then eventually artists, you know, they, they do turn toward a slower tempo, but the physical trunk rattling influence, the sound that is designed for the big speakers, the big events, and for cars, by the way, like that, you know, that sound, LA artists, um, you know, they're, they're, that's the sound that they, um, they're gravitating toward and that they're using and they continue to make references in the music to also local slang and local event local um you know uh local references like with toddy t when he's talking about the batter ram so there's still sort of these these ways in which the music is designed for local audiences and kind of in defiance of the new york influence so you know the, there's a way in which that LA scene, in my you know, in my research, um, that LA scene kind of develops in in reaction to New York, as opposed to kind of like um, picking up on and, and being influenced by New York. It's kind of it's less a tribute or a copy of the New York sound, and instead, um, kind of a repurposing of it. Like there there are influences in Dre, in particular, in his early production. Um, he uses some of the New York sound. Like, for instance, he uses Houdini and Beastie Boys in the, the Boys in the Hood, that, that Easy e track that he produces in 1986. There are influences that way. But he's just using them as samples, and there's really sort of um, this way in which he's repurposing some of that, but ultimately to make a very distinct L.A.-based, L.A.-focused sound for L.A. audiences. So, yeah, so it, it's, it's complicated and, you know, um, it's not exactly this thing develops in a vacuum in, in L.A. and it's not exactly sort of grassroots and sort of um, isolated that way, but it's also not exactly this westward migration and sort of the way that we kind of always think about the West and Western culture as, you know, um, somehow being influenced by the East. So it's, it's, it's complicated, um, which I think is a, a big piece of the story. 
What are some of the ways that L.A. style gangster rap starts to uh, uh, increase in popularity? And then sort of as a, on the flip side to that, how does the kind of the, the mainstreaming of this style of music, how, what is the reaction to it by white elite cultural gatekeepers, people like uh, those who work in entertainment outlets and music critics and politicians, and particularly in L.A., but also nationwide as well? It, it, well, it first takes hold in L.A., uh, which is, for me, an extremely important part of the story, that this is music that is created for local audiences. It's, it's created for local black kids in L.A. I mean, this is, this is really sort of a music that is um, not meant for outsiders. And so initially, you know, even Easy e is sort of, you know, he's such a brilliant promoter and he has big hopes for um, himself and for the group and for ultimately for Ruthless, for, the, for his label. Um, he does want national attention. I mean, he, he, he aspires that way. But, you know, ultimately his, his hopes are for local notoriety. And a lot of these guys feel the same way. They want local notoriety. You know, even you know the the um, mobile DJ crews that I was, that I mentioned, Uncle Jam's Army. You know, guys like Egyptian Lover. They're looking for local fame, and they succeed, and they you know make a good living. Some of them um, through the the local scenes, that local economy, the mobile DJ economy. Um, so it's it's initially kind of this this um, insulated scene. And that works for a while, but then, you know, especially Eazy-E and NWA, what they do in terms of sort of generating controversy for themselves and to get attention outside of LA, um, you know, they're, they're able to succeed in, in getting attention to LA rap um, and pulling sort of the spotlight away from New York to LA, which is, which is one of their, their big um, goals is to sort of, you know, look at us, you know, pay attention to what's going on in L.A. Um, this is different. You know, we have a different story to tell. The music sounds different. Um, you know, we have regional pride. And, you know, we, 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 want, um, we want music critics. We want New York. We want rap fans to pay attention to us. And they succeed in that way. Um, and the reaction is really mixed initially. Um, Reaction locally is really mixed. The local black press in LA, the LA Sentinel in particular, uh, LA Sentinel is sort of the beacon of LA's black community for, for decades. And you know it's tied to local religious leaders, to civil rights leaders, to political leaders, including Mayor Tom Bradley. And the local black press was, was skeptical, to say the least. I mean, um, there was this real concern about whether the music um, especially the music of um, NWA in particular, because they were the first group out of LA that could be defined as gangster rappers who were getting national attention. There was a real concern that the music and its depictions of violence, its references to gangs, references to guns and sex and drugs and all of that, um, a concern that it would be fodder for racists, fodder for bigots, and that... Um, you know, in addition, there was concern that gangster rap might kind of tarnish the reputation of LA's black communities, especially Compton and South Central, right, which were so often cited in this music that was also called obscene. Um, 
you know, and there, I, I quote the community leader, Leon, uh, excuse me, Leon Watkins in the book, who is an example of somebody who was embedded in the crisis. He's somebody who was working in the 1980s to rehabilitate former gang members. And um, in, in 89, so this is a couple years before the LA uprising, but it's when NWA is, you know, is really exploding in popularity in part because of the controversy around its, you know, some of its its most famous track. Um, I don't know if I can swear on the podcast, but F the police. <laughs> you can um, swear on the podcast, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have asked that in the beginning. But um, he, yeah, Leon Watkins was worried in 89 about how the music would, um, would incite violence. I mean, he, he thought that the music might be a battle cry. Uh, and this is 89, right? So this is a couple years before the LA riots. And, and you know, we can talk about that later maybe, but um, he, you know, he, he was concerned. So there's an example that within LA's black communities, the, the reaction was really mixed. And, and I would say, you know, largely negative. Um, there were others though, like Maxine Waters, for instance, Congresswoman who originally um, represented South Central, she, she was one who recognized that these artists were, you know, they're young black men, some of them teens who had been targets of police abuse from the time that they were little boys. And she was someone who heard in their music expressions of anger and protest. You know, it mixed in with all of the other kind of examples of youth defiance and um, and maybe nihilism and, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. She also, she heard most importantly these expressions of anger um, and, and protest. And the LA music press is interesting because this sort of broader LA music press at the time was kind of ambivalent. Um, LA Weekly, for instance, they they famously featured NWA on uh, the cover uh, on a cover in 1989, um, and they had the food writer Jonathan Gold cover them, uh, which kind of gives you a hint for the ambivalence that the, that LA Weekly had about you know covering these guys. Like they put them on the cover, but then they give the, the job to the food writer, uh, which was a you know Jonathan Gold did a fascinating review of them in this article called A Hard Act to Follow, um, which included a, a, a photo shoot featuring plastic guns. I mean, it was just really interesting. Um, and then the national music press, you were asking about them, the, you know, the, the press outside of LA. So, you know, really significant music outlets like Billboard and Spin, for instance. Um, Music maker, those kinds of outlets. They they were initially a little hands off, but then NWA appears on UMTV Raps in early '89, and they steal the show. They you know it, Easy E's wearing a bulletproof vest on TV, and you know they're they're riding around talking about um, talking about gangs, talking about violence in LA. Right, they're rolling through these neighborhoods with these like single-story bungalow homes, and they're talking about crisis. And so, there's a story to tell about LA that you know that music critics and the larger press really pick up on. Um, that there's there's something very different going on here, something different from the story that music critics in particular have been telling about New York. 
Um, so LA artists, you know, and I gotta say like that, that UMTV Raps appearance was so essential because they really earn attention for themselves. And then um, music journalists really raced to cover these guys. They raced to cover Eazy-E and NWA in the early years, especially after that appearance and prior to the, to the fuck the police controversy. Um, I mean, you know, even before fuck the police was a big deal, before the FBI wrote a letter to, to Priority Records about that song, you know, they represented scandal. NWA was sort of the epitome of rock and roll controversy without the rock and roll, right? So hmm. this, was, this was really good copy, and it was patently different in music journalism from what hip hop stories had been prior to that. So it really changes music journalism, I think, when, when, when these guys come on the scene. Um, and, you know, and, you know, there is this, um, this is very important for NWA. There's a, there's a, there's a way in which NWA is, is really curating this because it matters for them. And, the, you know, in the late 1980s, radio outlets, as a rule, were not playing rap. I mean, still, by the late 1980s, there was sort of a blackout. Um, even, and I would say especially in black radio, rap was just not something you played. And so when NWA is sort of pushing the envelope, um, and, you know, even MTV, when NWA produced their Straight Outta Compton video, MTV refuses to play that video, refuses to play their music. So, in other words, MT, you know what what NWA, what these guys are discovering is the more controversial you are, um, the less exposure you're going to get on radio, especially, and maybe in music television. But journalists might cover you, so you might get less exposure in these, you know, sort of the the gatekeepers of of music play, but you will get attention in the press. And so a big part of the story that I tell is how NWA and Easy E especially, and then eventually the people that follow, um, you know, within LA rap, within that scene, they understand that game. And they understand really well how to create platforms for themselves by tapping into the media's fascination with drama and with obscenity and with violence and with controversy. I mean, they are making music that, that um, of course, like, speaks to their very real experiences and their peers' experiences, but they're also using artistic license to exaggerate those things for effect, which is what comics do, which is what filmmakers do, which is what fiction writers do, and also at the time what reality TV producers and you know, sort of tabloid television producers were doing. So they fit really well into that whole landscape, um, and they're deliberately engaging with it, which is you know, which is why um, you know the book is about rap, but it also is about all of these other things about sort of the media landscape and uh, what's happening in television and cable news and in film at that time. So there's a lot of things going on, which is I think a really important way to understand um, how they're received at that time. 
Yeah, and this, as you're pointing out, this is a rapidly changing media landscape in the 1980s. And I thought that the MTV uh, portion of, of this story was fascinating because, you know, as someone that's not a, a music or a pop culture historian, really, I thought of MTV in the 80s as really being on the, the cutting edge of youth culture. And as you point out, you know, they they reject NWA for, you know, many years before eventually, you know, allowing them essentially to appear on their network and that it was a real there was a real fight and that that was a really fascinating story to me i really particularly like that part oh cool thank you thanks yeah yeah let's put um the story of the 1992 la uprising into this larger context how does the perception of gangster rap shape the perception of these riots what is the relationship between this music scene this cultural scene in los angeles and this event Great question. Um, great question. It so in a nutshell, the 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 ninety two riots are really a catalyst for the commercialization of gangster rap. Um, I mean, you can see it in the numbers. You can see it in the reactions. Um, there are some ways in which uh, you know Ice Cube. He's gone solo by this point, and he releases his third album, The Predator. Uh, very shortly after the end of the riots, um, and Dr. Dre's debut album, of course, Dr. Dre's solo by this point, his debut album, The Chronic, is released shortly after the riots, um, I think December of 92. And both of those are monster successes. And really, this is the point at which rap goes mainstream. I mean, there there are sort of hints that hip-hop is getting some mainstream um, recognition, you know, sort of topping the, the um, black music uh, billboard charts. Some in the, the billboard pop charts, you see some rap songs in the billboard pop charts, but really it's after 92 when uh, hip hop goes commercial, goes mainstream, and ultimately sort of smothers pop music. It, it, this is a watershed moment. So. Um, and I really do think that uh, you can make the case that the LA right, and I do make this case, that it is the catalyst for, for that. Um, you know, and the reason for that, I think, is after years of critics saying that, uh, that gangster rap specifically, um, and LA rap more generally, was just, you know, that, that, what, that what these guys were doing was too exaggerated, you know, their music was too angry, it was hyperbolic, it was dark and dystopian. Uh, the riots made palpable everything that these artists had been telegraphing since Toddy T's The Bataram. So, you know, and, and again, it, full context, full media context here, this is the beginning of the era of the 24-hour news cycle. So, you know, we have to remember that in 91, after March, after Rodney King's beating is caught on tape. That tape is aired day and night on 24-hour you know, cable news. There's also the gavel-to-gavel coverage of that trial that, of course, ends in acquittal. And, and then there's the day and night coverage of violent rebellion in L.A. that, that you know, for, for the first time, people are watching this play out, and not just, you know, sort of in the nightly news in little clips. Like, there, this is all day long. So if you can imagine, you know, if we talk about like Vietnam as the, the, the television war, because people were seeing images of war on their television screens, that was also when they were just watching the nightly news. 
So they're getting sort of a condensed version of it. They're seeing it and they're exposed to it and they're impacted by it. But, it, but here you have something similar that's happening, but it's 24-hour news cycle. So it's day and night. People can, are seeing this play out in real time, um, day after day. And this serves LA rappers and their efforts to draw attention to this crisis in LA. You know, all that coverage served these guys better than any music video. Uh, or any media publicity. I mean, it, it drew people, and not just white people, not just white youth, but but rap fans outside of LA, and you know, and critics, and really everyone draws them to this the music. I mean, and not necessarily makes everyone love the music, but makes everyone interested in the music um, of guys like Ice T and and Ice Cube and Dre and King T and eventually you know Snoop Dogg. Um, and the Dog Pound, and MC8, and DJ Quick, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the LA riots help rappers make the case um, that they're culturally relevant, and that everything that they had been talking about for years was not hyperbole, but was actually referencing these real problems, in particular police violence. So, so there's that part of it, and then it's 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 trickier to know how or if the music shaped the riots, right? So we, you know, we know from documentary footage, we know from evidence of graffiti, quoting NWA um, that, you know, is, is written during the riots. You know, we know that LA rap, and particularly NWA's song, Fuck the Police, becomes a battle cry during the rebellion. So there, there's documentary footage of um, black kids driving around in the riot zone, blasting NWA out of the car proudly, right? Like it, like it's a battle cry, um, and and many reporters and politicians, you can imagine, um, take that and they turn it to blame rappers for inciting violence. So there's there is a narrative that that um, uh, that is that is popular in the in the months after the riots where you know rappers are seen as sort of the the catalyst right so it's it's the rappers who are who are to blame for all of this um but you know we know now i mean it's, it's 2020 is such an interesting um a, a meaningful uh frame of reference for what's going on in for this history in 1992 and, and, the, and the influence of rap on something like the, the, the 92 uprising. Because, you know, it, as we see in 2020 in these racial justice protests, demonstrators are citing rappers. They, they're citing NWA. I've seen, I saw, you know, graffiti and I saw signs and I heard people chanting, fuck the police. You also see references to sort of the, the legacies of that. So um, Atlanta's uh, Migos, for instance, had a song uh, called um, Fuck 12. And of course you see Fuck 12 in the graffiti and people saying that. And YG, who is a, another LA rapper, uh, more current LA rapper, has a song um, FTP, which of course is Fuck the Police, but his song is FTP. He released a video uh, shortly after the, the initial George Floyd um, protests. Uh, and all of this stuff you hear and you see in the demonstrations now but of course, we know the music doesn't cause the rioting, right? So it, you know, we we know now that um, this is 
these are ways to express anger and frustration. So the music doesn't create the crisis of violent policing, right? It doesn't create the crisis of violent policing that led to the death of George Floyd, doesn't create the violent policing that led to Rodney King's beating, and it doesn't create the racial bigotry that produced, in 1992, the not guilty verdict in the trial against the police officers that beat King, and it does not create the generations of pain and grievances that spur the riots. Um, it is an expression of all of those things. Um, and, you know, maybe Watkins was right. Like it, you know, it does create an opportunity for uh, music to become a kind of battle cry, um, you know, in, in the context of, of upheaval. So, yeah, it's, it, it is connected. And, there, and, and I will say that, you know, I, I end with the 92 riots. I mean, it, it, is, it is very, very deliberate. There certainly um, ha, would have been an opportunity for me to extend beyond 92 to talk about, um, you know, to, to, to go through the 90s and, of course, deal with something like um, the death of Tupac and, you know, death row records and a lot of the things that we associate with gangster rap after 92, but it just seemed like such a profound, important watershed moment, the LA riots. And, and the book is really about the commercialization of rap. I mean, it, that's kind of the larger overarching narrative um, that, you know, I'm really trying to help folks understand why rap goes pop. Um, and it's a complicated story, and it's really intertwined with um, with LA, with LA, and with policing, and and with and with that that ninety two uprising. Yeah. And on that question of the commercialization of rap, you you end the book in a short conclusion with the story of Kendrick Lamar and his rise in the mid 2010s. You describe him in the book as, in your words, reared in the path of the battering ram. So can you just talk briefly about what his sort of his rise to superstardom tells us about West Coast rap at the in the early 21st century, kind of where things stand today? Uh, a great question. I mean, it, <laughs> um, it's my, you know, in, in a way, it's. I'm trying to make the case for um, why this history matters now. Uh, and, you know, on the one hand, Kendrick's popularity in the 20 teens, especially in 2016, I mean, he, he wins the Pulitzer in 2018. So, and this is around the time that I finished the manuscript. I think, you know, the, the conclusion might have been, might have looked a little different. I may have talked about more current. Um, uh, LA rappers like Roddy Rich and the conclusion had I written, had I finished it um, in the last couple of years, rap is so dynamic, it changes so much and so quickly that, you know, sometimes it's hard to kind of get hold of, of, of what the scene looks like at any particular time. But, um, you know, Kendrick Lamar in the 20 teens, he, he represents what, what ultimately I define as sort of an LA rap renaissance during this period, um, and I think it, this is still happening. There, you know, 2016 is the point when you have LA artists like Vince Staples and Schoolboy Q, J Rock, um, Tyler the Creator, and the Odd Future crew. Um, of course, producers like DJ Mustard are huge during this time, uh, and also Nipsey Hussle. Uh, who, uh, of course, passed away recently, but was such a such a big force, not just in LA, but but in um, hip hop and in pop, you know, popular culture. 
uh, during this time. And, and um, Kendrick in 2016 on that Grammy stage, you know, that, what I describe in the conclusion, it, he, he is just so emblematic. And that performance is so emblematic of how rap has evolved since the era of Toddy T and the Bataram. Um, L.A. rap, since that period in the mid-'80s, as I you know, try to describe, it, it helps take hip-hop into the realm of, of the commercial mainstream. And by the 1990s, so by, you know, after the riots, by the, the mid-1990s, in particular rap music, underpinned by West Coast production, especially the production of guys like Dr. Dre, uh, but also West Coast sort of versions of the gangster and West Coast slang and West Coast style, um, this is not just on the charts, but it kind of takes over the charts. So, you know, and, and the, the, the boost that L.A. rap provides to hip-hop and how it exposes these other very unique regional sounds, it opens the door for Atlanta and Memphis and Miami and Houston and Chicago and Philly and on and on and on to break out. So, so hip-hop explodes in the 1990s, and then by the early 2000s, rap is just, it is so diverse, it is so dynamic, it is not one thing, it is not sort of just this New York thing anymore, and it's synonymous with pop music. And the, the you know, I, I conclude with the Grammys in part because the Grammys, the Grammy Awards is sort of this one last institution, powerful, powerful, cultural institution, um, you know, one of, one of the last institutions to accept that change, to accept that black youth music had become the most significant, most influential cultural force in America. Um, the, you know, the Grammys are just slow to get with it. <laughs> I mean, when it hmm. finally adds best rap song, that category in 2004, by the way, <laughs> so it adds rap rap album in 1996. It adds that category in 96, which is still really late to the game. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't even add the best rap song category in 2004. And even when it does, winners in the category um, that are meant to celebrate, you know, th this category is meant to celebrate this definitively black genre. The awards are going disproportionately to white artists like, like Eminem and Macklemore. So, you know, there's this real blind spot um, here in, you know, represented in the Grammy Awards, this, this major, major American cultural institution, um, and a history of racism, right? Um, and still, it, it, it is this, this monstrous cultural institution. So it, in that context, the Grammy stage is still a significant platform for a rapper like Kendrick, even though he's getting snubbed by the Grammys, even though like he's losing to you know white artists like like Macklemore, um, this is still a stage that he can leverage. So you know, and the Grammys put him on because he had become by that point one of the biggest, most popular artists at that moment. You know, he did that along with, of course, other LA uh, LA artists like like. Of course, Dr. Dre, but also Schoolboy Q, and um, and of course the rap fans that supported him. You know, it, it, this is um, a significant um, accomplishment to get on the Grammy stage, and so he earns for himself this really powerful opportunity to present his rap, present LA rap to millions and millions and millions of viewers, and most of them white, 
um, and, and to present in that, in that performance images of incarceration, images of Africa, images of black masculinity and black pride and protest and Compton. So he's giving you all of that on the Grammy stage in 2016. And of course, 2016 is this, um, this really turbulent year in, in American political and, um, you know, in American political culture where it's an election year, Black Lives Matter movement is, um, is really blossoming. There's also, you know, white supremacists are coming out in, in, in force. Um, there are all these, those high profile police killings, of course. So there's, there, there are ways in which we're not just seeing sort of reflections of the past in Kendrick himself, who I said, you know, who of course is like born in the late 80s, sort of the, the direct legacy of, of that LA rap past, but also we're seeing, you know, echoes of the past in these, these police killings and in, you know, um, in, in the, the kind of reaction to them and the protest and also, and also um, racial tensions. So we're seeing, seeing a lot of that happening in 2016. And, you know, I, I thought that it, it was a powerful way to conclude the book because his performance in 2016 is considered um, still one of the most powerful and most memorable in Grammy history. And that fact, the, the reception of his performance in that way, I, you know, I think depends on audiences understanding those LA references. It depends on all of us having some sense of the legacies of LA gangster rap, even if like, you know, we didn't listen to gangster rap or we don't, you know, or we think that it sort of, it, it um, corrupted the quote unquote, you know, sort of golden era of hip hop or what, however we think of gangster rap, there's still sort of like, you, you can't understand the significance of that performance, Kendrick Lamar's performance in 2016 on the Grammy stage without sort of having some sense of how gangster rap fits into our history and without understanding the legacies of Rodney King and the LA riots. Um, so, you know, it, it, to me it was an important way to see how American culture is, is still very much um, referencing, and, and rap music spe specifically, and LA rap more specifically, still referencing um, these crises around police violence and the devaluing of black lives. And so, you know, you, you can't understand Kendrick's popularity or the popularity of other LA rappers, like Nipsey Hussle, for instance, who was honored on the Grammy stage this year, by the way. Um, you can't really understand that without knowing the influence of LA rap over pop music um, and, and the American cultural landscape. So it, it's, it, it, is, it is deeply, deeply significant that this genre does what it does and still um, still resonates. Uh, yeah. So as we start to wrap up our interview, um, th this is a, obviously a, a, a complicated book with a lot of complex arguments that you make within, but if there is one big takeaway that you hope readers come away from your book remembering, what might that be? <laughs> uh, so I... It's a great question, and I, I, I hope people enjoy it. I mean, first and foremost, I, I hope um, 
folks who never thought they would have any interest in rap music um, read the book and are you know and and come away with some revelations. I, that's one of the things I hope. I mean, I, but I also think that people, including a lot of people invested in hip hop, who are hip hop fans, who have read a lot about hip hop, um, who who feel like they know hip hop really well, I still think that there's this there's this popular notion that the that the history of hip hop is a story about how you know hip hop was once protest music and then it kind of lost its way, especially as it crossed over and went commercial. I think that that's like a really popular um, stereotype of what hip hop is, what it was, and what it's become. And I just hope that after reading my book, readers come away with a sense for how wrong that is and how much more complicated and really more interesting the story really is. Um, you know, I, I'm making the case that you can peddle smut and you can speak truth to power at the same damn time. And sometimes <laughs> one serves the other. And, you know, and if we are constantly trying to separate the two, then, um, then I think it, 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 it is, um, it's, it's a disservice to us and it, it does not, it's not a true reflection of, of our history. So that's what I hope people come away with, that you can pedal smell uh, and speak truth to power at the same time. I think, yeah, I think that definitely comes across. Um, I, I think that, that, you know, you really make the case in this book that if you want to understand the history of the American West, in especially the urban American West, American West in cities in the yeah. 1980s and 1990s, that you need to pay attention to this story, that you can't tell one without the other. So I always like to get a preview from my guests at the end of the podcast about what they're working on next. And, you know, this is the New Books Network, so it's always kind of a silly question since this is a brand new book. It's been out for, you know, a matter of months. But historians always tend to have a few uh, pots on the, on, the, on the stove, on the cooker. So what are you working on next? What, what is the next project that you're hoping to, to, start, to start to work on? I, so I've been playing around with the idea of uh, researching suburban parenting in the 70s and 80s. So there's some overlap there. I, I'm fascinated by this period of the 70s and the 80s, obviously. Um, and I, t- I talk a little bit in the book about um, some of the like precursors to the culture wars, some of the 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 panics around culture in the 1980s, like the like like the satanic panic uh, around heavy metal music. Um, so. I, I'm, I'm interested in that, and I'm interested in how this impacts um, parents in the suburbs, white parents in particular. Um, you know, so at the, at the time, you know, the 70s and 80s at a time when um, there's this kind of old school free range childhood, uh, and, and that is beginning to clash with, um, with high profile kidnappings and murders and, you know, the first gasps of the culture wars and, you know, like I said, panic around obscenity and violence in music. So I'm interested in sort of that, that tension um, in, in terms of parenting. Um, and part of this is because, you know, as a historian, um, thinking about changes that have happened in recent years, especially gentrification, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking, well, what, what's at the root of this? You know, what, what, is, um, what is producing this sort of return to the cities? And of course, now we're seeing in a weird way sort of a throwback to the 50s where parents are again, especially, you know, parents with means, not just white parents, but, um, but people with privilege are again looking to the suburbs and the exurbs in search of space and, and you know, quote unquote community 
and better schools and escape from things that are, you know, sort of negatively associated with cities, including crowds and crime and, and now disease. So, you know, I'm thinking about these cycles and I just think that uh, that that's where my my research will go. <laughs> will be about you know fear and paranoia in the suburbs yeah. in the '80s. I think that's that's what I'll be investigating next. Dr. Felicia and Jaja Viator is an assistant professor of history at San Francisco State University, and her new book, To Live and Defy in L.A., How Gangster Rap Changed America, just came out with Harvard University Press earlier this year in 2020. Thank you so much for joining me today, Felicia. Oh, thank you. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it.